There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, this is Lainey. Hi, it's Duanna. And welcome to the fourth episode of our podcast about work, which we resolve that today will be named. Absolutely. Stay tuned to find out what we actually decide to call this thing. And this is obviously not a podcast about names, but let me just point out, in case people care, the mother of all letters, the best letter I received this year, uh, I'm going to run it, I think, at the end of the year, whatever we do before New Year's, it's going to be the best one of the year. Stay tuned for that. And by the way, the name Therapist is the name of Duanna's book released this year, Duanna Taha. Go get it. It's so good. Oh, are we doing that? Uh, <laughs> have you bought Listen to the Squawking Chicken yet? It's a good Christmas gift. Okay. Self-promotion aside, it was a big week. Lots to talk about where people were out there giving us, I mean, I said it over and over again last week, the term nuts and bolts, the nuts and bolts of the work of Hollywood. Um, so we have a lot to get to. We have a lot of stories. I mean, our editing for this podcast in terms of all the stories we wanted to talk about was like our list, our coming in list was about 10, 10 topics long. Well, to get a bit meta about the way that we decide what to do, we send emails back and forth, we text back and forth, but with articles usually, is this for the podcast? Is this for the podcast? And yeah, this week, more than any other, there were in the dozens, which is amazing. There were in the dozens, and it's actually surprising to me because typically around this time of year is when things start to slow a little bit, especially in Hollywood. But I think we're seeing a surge of work before everybody takes break for the new year. So this has been really exciting for us, and a lot of the things that have happened are so relevant to what we're trying to do here on this show. Um, let's start with somebody who we have disagreed on over the course of our friendship. Um, and her name is Natalie Portman. It's been years and years of disagreement about Natalie Portman. Uh, when we met first, you thought what? I loved her. Yeah, you thought I, she was adorable. I thought she was adorable. I was a big fan of Natalie Portman. I think um, for me, I loved when she went on Saturday Night Live and did the fucking rap. Um, you know that. And sure. Of course, sure. and she had short hair and it was a pixie cut. Yeah, yeah. V it was all Vendetta. about it. Everybody loves it. And then um, I will concede that uh, my love of Natalie Portman has since been killed by Natalie Portman herself. And me. And you. I, I want to point out that when uh, I have never really loved Natalie Portman, but I didn't care that much about how much I didn't like her. Yeah. Until everybody started to adore her. Uh, probably circa Garden State, which was 2004. We'll right. come back to that. And it was a very unpopular opinion. You know those things that people talk about, like un unpopular opinions online? I got a lot of shade for not liking Natalie Portman. Yeah. But she's a lot to take. She's a lot. Well, let's backtrack because the reason why we're talking about Natalie Portman and why a lot of people are talking about Natalie Portman is because there's a film, she's in Jackie, she plays Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis. Um, the film takes place when JFK is assassinated and in the aftermath, the days following, she's considered an Oscar frontrunner. 
She obviously knows how to win an Oscar. <laughs> oh, God. See, that's the worst of it. But we'll get there, yes. You know, and I, knowing how to win an Oscar is a part of the work in winning an Oscar. Anyway, she's won an Oscar. She's on the campaign trail this season. And there was a really interesting article uh, published recently um, at MTV, MTV.com, written by T.O. Bugby about Natalie Portman. The title of the email or the title of the article is Natalie Portman Will Never Grow Up. And basically, one of the funniest things, this the article is hilarious, but one of the funny things written about Natalie Portman in this piece, and the reason why I sent it to Duanna, knowing that she would be smugly satisfied, is because Natalie is referred to as Peter Pan in this article. Right. So here's what's interesting. I didn't find it hilarious. I thought it was great, but I found the article kind of tragic because basically, uh, first of all, it focuses on, uh, the thesis is written around Jackie, the film, which I've yet to see. Have you seen it? Mm -mm. I've seen extended clips, uh, but basically it's about sort of the very formalness of Jackie Kennedy, the mask that she wears even in the face of, you've seen those iconic shots, right, of the pink suit covered in blood. Um, so the thesis of the article is sort of that Natalie Portman's inherent childishness, childlikeness, is why we want to watch her in these roles about women who are childlike or that she's Peter Pan. The reason that I don't particularly resonate with the Peter Pan thing specifically is because Peter Pan is charming. And Natalie Portman feels <laughs> like a tragedy to me. Is that crazy? Okay. All right. I, I will. Um, I think, too, though, is what this writer is trying to say. I mean, this was not an article meant to shade Natalie Portman. It was an observation on why Natalie Portman is successful in Hollywood and the men who make the casting decisions and who write the reviews love to see Natalie Portman perpetually as a girl, a woman girl. Yeah, a sexy baby. Let's be honest. That's right. Like, it's all very, like, she's so innocent, but she's so desirable. And every role that she's ever had, you can kind of fit into that mold, right? Yes, the virgin, the virgin trope. The, the yeah, innocent, nubile virgin. You're probably wrong for thinking about her that way, even when she's a over age, right? That's in right. Closer in Black Swan. Yes. In Garden State. Yes. And for sure, uh, in the professional, which is where she started, which is where this whole perv thing got started. That's right. Do you think Natalie Portman is smart? Well, I think what this writer is saying is that she is smart and she has ambitions and cares about things outside of Hollywood. She is trying to do work for women. She is trying to, Duanna is making a skeptical face right now. And so what the thesis really of this piece is, is that Natalie Portman's success depends on a girlishness and a creepy, um, a creepy appeal to men that undermines the work she's doing off screen. Oh, 100%. And I'm not sure how much I buy the working off-screen stuff because she plays so much into the, the on-screen. I can't think of a role that she's tried to play that is outside of this mold that doesn't work. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think a lot of these really work. 
Um, and I'm trying to look up right now. Wasn't yeah. though she did? This is a really good comparison. Mm-hmm. And Sarah, I sent this also, this piece also to Sarah, um, who calls Natalie Portman never Natalie because she hates Natalie Portman just as much as you do. Sure. Um, so they they though they did a film. Natalie Portman and Scarlett Johansson did a film together. Do you remember? It was the Boleyn Girl or the Boleyn Sisters. Oh sure, sure, sure. The other something. Boleyn Girl. Yeah. And Natalie played Anne Boleyn, I believe. And I think that that may be the only role, the only role where she's not that girl who, you know, the 60-year-old um, studio executive is, you Wants know. Wants to fuck. Yeah. Let's get real about exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and the thing about that is it's arguably her most forgettable movie, Right. Well, and the thing about that, to go back to the comparison, is that Scarlett Johansson, who was also a child star, became a woman. Sure. So I've actually been looking... And not a girl woman. Like, we don't think of Scarlett Johansson in that virgin trope. No. um, Natalie Portman is... I just Googled this. According to this, as of this podcast, 35 years and 177 days, just to be precise. Uh, She's halfway to 40, uh, you know... From 30, I suppose. She's she's closer to 40 than she is to 20. We don't think of her that way at all. By comparison, even much, much younger performers, I you, when you were talking about work and people who are working for the advocacy of women, I thought of Emma Watson, who is arguably almost 10 years younger and feels like a woman, feels like she's working to be a does woman. Does she? I buy the UN stuff that she does. I buy the advocacy that she talks about. Do the roles speak to it? Maybe not yet. Well, certainly not Beauty and the Beast. No, I mean, that is a Natalie Portman role too. But there's something really interesting in that, in actors waiting for adult roles. Uh, It happens to men as well to a slightly lesser extent. There is a period of time where you are playing young ingenues and young girls and then female leads, sort of, but you have to be a woman to play them by contrast, of course, the gold standard of contrast. Julia Roberts was only 20 when she played Vivian in Pretty Woman, but she was already a woman. Oh, God. Yes. (laughs) Yes. She was never a girl. There were never all of those roles following that, the Pelican Brief and I Love Trouble and everything. She she wasn't even a girl in uh, Steel, Steel Magnolias. Not in Steel Magnolias yeah. and not in Mystic Pizza. Maybe barely in Mystic Pizza, but not really. Yeah. They had Annabeth Gish for that. God, I love Mystic Pizza. <laughs> so Natalie Portman is in, is forever a girl. And to me, the reason I winced when you said, oh, she knows how to win an Oscar is because for me, the moment the world caught up to me on Natalie Portman, yeah. you know, because we were together or at least shouting across a hotel complex. Yes. When she accepted her award for Black Swan, she was A, pregnant, B, wearing a, like, pink child's nightie with a rose on it. (laughs) Yes. And then proceeded, and we remember this, to say, and you can correct me about whether it was actually on stage or in the press room, uh, then proceeded to point out that the idea of uh, Nina and Black Swan is that nobody wants to fuck her. But Ben said, but but somebody does. Because look at him. Because my husband does. Because <laughs> yeah. And gesturing awkwardly to her belly. Everything that people want to talk about, poise and grace and whatever else for Natalie Portman, 
utterly non-existent. Yes, this, we're looking at this picture right now. Yeah, the child's satin nightgown uh, with a big rose in the middle over the pregnant belly. And Lainey is showing me a picture that uh, makes her look a little bit graceful. I think she's wearing red matching satin shoes, which… Platforms open Fuck off with that. (laughs) But she just has no… There's no actual real womanliness about her. I have a, my biggest memory of Natalie Portman is not a personal memory. It's not a, it's one of those throwaway things in a profile that once upon a time she and her mom became convinced that somebody was stalking her or that many people were stalking her at her apartment building and called the police to report that cars were stopping outside the building. And the police, you know, did their due diligence and did investigations and said, oh no, actually those are just people stopping on the street because that's what people do. There's an inflated sense of self there, but more importantly to me, that story involves her mom. And that will always be Natalie Portman to me on some level. I think, I, you know, you're exactly right, is when that um, Natalie Portman tipped over to disgust for me and I was finally like, okay, Duanna, you're right, is that moment. It was at the Golden Globe, so on her way to winning an Oscar. And, you know, she got up there in that fucking dress you're talking about. And I was like, okay, this is what you're going to do. This is the move you're going to play. Fuck you. Yeah, it was. But she almost couldn't play any other. She doesn't have the ability, arguably. Fun, funny you say that because, and you're going to love this, she was supposed to be Juliet opposite Leonardo DiCaprio in Baz Luhrmann's Juliet, or in Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. That's right. And the reason why Baz Luhrmann and the other casting directors Uh, pulled her out and ended up casting Claire Danes is because even though she was of the age to play, um, even though she was the part, even though we all know Juliet is a young girl, even still opposite Leonardo DiCaprio and particularly him, quote, she looked like she was being molested. Right. And that is in essence Natalie Portman. Right. But Claire Danes got that role. Claire Danes is uh, born in 1979. I know this for a fact. Claire Danes is a woman, has been playing women for many, many years. Natalie Portman still isn't. So the question is, look, she's going to maybe win the Oscar. Maybe she won't, but, you know, there's a good chance, right? She will get ever more roles. She will. Who do we want to see Natalie Portman become? Like, what does she play next? What was most interesting to me about the article you sent is that there was an understanding that maybe one of the reasons that she may win the Oscar, that she won for Black Swan, is that these roles go hand in hand, right? The character Nina in Black Swan is a child in a woman's body, or not woman's body, as is the case in that movie. That Jacqueline Kennedy, in this stage of her life, was a child in a woman's body uh, or endeavored to become a, stay a child because of various circumstances. Are there more children for her to play? <laughs> well, I have the answer for you because she is signed on to play um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. You know what my immediate thought was? It's like, you know all those people who dress their babies up like Ruth Bader Ginsburg for Halloween? Yeah. Like, it's like that. There's a, okay, I mean. It's perfect. I got to leave that there. No disrespect to RBG. That's, that's interesting. I, I, hope, I hope we're all seeing that together. Anyway, um, 
That was very satisfying for you, I'm sure. It's true. I'd actually like to go back and make a little, you know, we were talking about little, like, sound effects. I'd like to go back and make a little sound effect button out of when you said, okay, Duanna, you were right. Yeah. Uh, if we could just make that a button that we great. keep playing at times, that'd be great. Yeah, it's like FYI. We move from Natalie Portman to James Marsden. So this is what's really interesting. As much as we talk about the work and the behind-the-scenes work and all that kind of thing, obviously we interpret tons of it through the people that we see. And what's fascinating about Hollywood, the thing that is most interesting is as much as we roll our eyes about actors and everybody else, they're working too. They also want to work. They want to find places to do better work. It doesn't always work out, but this is nonetheless that that's what they want. So there was this article in Vulture by Angelica Jade Bastian. James Marsden is one of the best actors of his generation. Why hasn't Hollywood noticed? Now, I should point out that before we discuss this, uh, as I was, I saw this when I was scrolling past something else and it was sort of vaguely clickbaity, as you know, and I assumed that this was about Jason Ritter. <laughs> so I am part of the problem. <laughs> well, I mean, we've just come off a conversation about Natalie Portman in which her girlishness and her virgin persona have worked to basically further her career. And then in the James Marsden case, the writer of this piece, Angelica, argues that James Marsden's looks, his beauty, have actually prevented him from becoming a bigger deal. That his talent has been obscured by this face. So, which is really interesting because he's not a lead actor. He's good-looking enough to be a lead actor, but he has always played the guy who almost gets the girl, the guy who doesn't get the girl. I was fascinated by your immediate association with James Marsden. Which is the guy who didn't get Rachel McAdams in The Notebook. And with a terrible name, like Lon. Uh, like, listen, that's What Southern. is that that's name? Lon, Lon Chaney. You've heard of Lon. Come on. I hate, like, anyway. So, Lon. Everybody remembers Lon. Nothing was wrong with Lon, but Lon wasn't Ryan Gosling. That's what's most interesting about that story, is that Lon was not an asshole. A lesser movie, a lesser show would have had that person be an, an easy choice to turn away from. For sure. But he's kind of lovely or at least fine. And so you like him. Um, and, you know, arguably he's had more and more roles like that. This article is pinned around Westworld. Arguably, spoilers ahead if you care or don't. Uh, you know, he's really focused on Dolores in Westworld. Um, and he's just, as the line here that's really great says, Instead of winning the girl, uh, Teddy, in this case, who he plays in Westworld, is meant to have her always just out of his reach, which is a great point. About so, all his characters. About all his characters. <laughs> so here's the thing, though. It, as we talk about famous and awards and all the rest of it, those awards come down to five or ten actors a year. Many, many more are just happy to be working. Is there a career to be had in being a James Marsden? You know, is it the kind of thing where you can continue to play the second lead, the guy who almost gets the girl? I feel like it's almost a proto... Well, maybe this is part of the problem. I was about to compare him to Patrick Dempsey. It's a very similar sort of really winsome, almost gets the girl kind of actor life. But the argument is, shouldn't he be doing more? 
And is he too good looking, I guess, to do more? I think with this kind of thing, as you say, James Marsden has never not worked. Mm -hmm. So from the perspective of success and how we define it, he's worked, it's been interesting work, and it's been consistent work. So is that success? For some reason, though, in Hollywood, for both the people who exist in Hollywood and people who watch Hollywood, success is defined by awards, box office, and being the Tom Cruise, Johnny Depp, Brad Pitt, whatever. Um, I think they apply that measure of success, and I think we do too. No question. And I don't think that, yeah, you're right. Although, of course, in theory, all of us acknowledge he's okay. He's worked. He's, he's fine. He's making money. All of us buy into this thing where movie stardom and a type of movie stardom is what everybody wants. You know, you talk about Patrick Dempsey, and I think Patrick Dempsey had those goals, presumably too, and then only became the guy who ended up getting the girl when he went to television. And some of this article in Vulture is talking about how James Marsden might see his greatest, quote, success on a television show after sort of sidelining from movies. That, to me, is a conversation, too, that we're having more and more of. Which, yeah, and look, I'm never going to be okay with the phrase sidelining from movies because I don't think it's the same. I think it's different and arguably better. In case you haven't heard me rant on this before, a movie is 90 minutes to explore a character. A show is 10 hours, maybe 10 hours times three or four or five years. That's just more. It's just better. It's just more in-depth. It's that simple. There are bigger screens, but there's much less time, and so everything you do is much less nuanced. Uh, that's me on movie and TVs, in a movie and TV in a nutshell. But it is a frustration that you have expressed often and you have taught me about because it is something that we all contribute to, whether we agree with it or not. And it's this idea, and we've discussed it on Laney Gossip for years, that film sits on a higher plane on the hierarchy than television does. It has changed over the last decade for sure. But for the same reason the Oscars outrank the Emmys, that is still the truth. It hasn't changed yet. But one of the reasons that television is having such a golden age renaissance, I believe, is because there are no middle-of-the-road movies anymore. That is to say, most movies that make enormous money at the box office are, as I said so eloquently a couple of weeks ago, movies with a number in the title. Yes. You know, it's big, big blockbuster superhero or otherwise big summer movies are making most of the money, right? Moana is going to make tons and tons of money, and so it should. But the small character movies, I'm thinking about movies like Carol or, uh, you know, even Closer that we mentioned a few months ago or things like uh, The Fences uh, Mm -hmm. that we're coming up this year, most people won't see. They won't make it to most megaplexes or they won't be the biggest hits. So one of the reasons that TV has become so much more attractive and so much more interesting is because movies don't allow room for performances and actors anymore. One of the fun things that we did once is that we actually, um, a few years ago when we were in LA, and I think it was Oscar week, Duane and I went out with a bunch of agents. Um, And some of them were movie agents and some of them were TV agents. The funny thing is the TV agents 
who have a roster of TV actors actually make more money. A hundred percent. Way more money. And yet, even in the business of agenting, the agents who represent movie stars are treated as the big swaggy guys at the office. That's right. And that rolls down. The publicists, the managers, the everybody. It is still more prestigious to have somebody in a big movie or even a medium movie than it is uh, to have, yeah, some very, very successful TV people. I always talk about the two most stealth wealthy people in Hollywood, uh, Alison Hannigan and Jared Padalecki. Yes. <laughs> because neither of them is a household name. You cannot sell a magazine with either of them on the cover. Nope. But she's got, I believe, seven years of Buffy plus 10 years of How I Met Your Mother in syndication. Yeah. And he's got seven years of Gilmore Girls, give or take, whatever. Um, spoiler, plus 12 and counting years of Supernatural. Dude is rich. Allison Hannigan is rich. Those residuals go on forever. But that's not the same as glamour and prestige and being the person who is getting the attractive scripts in the same way. So Dean is around for seven seasons? Yes and no. Uh, don't worry about it. Uh, no. Okay, to go, back, to go back to James Marsden then. To go back to James Marsden, here's the most interesting part of the article to me. I want to read a little bit of it. They talk about how great his face is, how well he uh, is able to express things in his face. And they say, it is exceedingly rare to see an actor communicate so much in close-ups and wide shots. He really looks, acts, and moves like an animated Disney prince come to life. Dot, dot, dot. That's me cutting out some, as you do in print. We don't like our movie stars to have such physical perfection, but Marsden does. Dot, dot, dot. But to be a star, there needs to be some sort of imperfection, a noticeable quirk that seems a bit off or too grand, either in their looks or personality. Betty Davis had her large, unusual eyes. Elizabeth Taylor had a squeaky voice that seemed incongruent with her radiant looks. Julia Roberts has her toothy, shark-like smile. Will Smith's face, or rather his ears and goofy air, reminds you he was once the Hollywood version of the class clown. There are some arguable exceptions to this, like Meryl Streep, but that sort of exalted perfection has taken decades to cultivate. So I actually had a showrunner boss who used to say that the people who look best on TV, again, we're conflating TV and movies here, stay with me, are people who have almost cartoon-like features in real life. That something about them is exaggerated in real life, but that looks great on screen. Super big eyes, or a very wide smile, or sometimes that too big head on a little body. Huge forehead. Looks really good on TV or film in a way that a quote-unquote normal attractive face just doesn't. So that's fascinating to me. Is James Marsden so forgettable and underappreciated partly because he's just generically good looking? That there's no like, quote, freakishly one feature about him that stands out? Well, there's nothing to hang on to, right? Yeah. I, my joke about thinking he was Jason Ritter is a joke, but also I actually think Jason Ritter's face is a little more memorable. Uh, I don't know how caricatures work, but they latch onto one feature, you know. This, frankly, has always been my argument about Brad Pitt, that I find him almost bland, even though I understand in, empirically 
that each feature is attractive on its own, there's nothing to hang on to uh, as there is even in people I don't think are attractive, like a, like a Daniel Craig, for example. Um, so that's really a fascinating physical thing. If we talk about all the stars that we can think of, they often do have a, a little, a bit of a physical tell that is their unusual thing a little bit. Um, even if it's a curling lip, like a, like a Michael Sheen or mm-hmm. a, you know, the big eyes on the Amanda Seyfrieds or whatnot of the world. Um, and then the other thing I think is, can you hang on to a, an under the radar workingness and have it become stardom? The, the example we've been touching on is John Hamm starring in Gilmore Girls as a like five line nobody five minutes before he got Mad Men and probably feeling like, God, my life is the worst. Also, I think about Michael Keaton in Birdman. What had he done in the 15 years prior? Nothing. So can a James Marsden hang on? Should he? Is there a world where James Marsden is going to be up for an Oscar in five to 10 years time? So ironically, at 40 plus, do I need to start caring about James Marsden? Do you need to care about James Marsden? Our weekly... Our weekly installment of Do We Need to Care About is James Marsden. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And while James Marsden is perhaps experiencing the highest highs of his career, we want to talk about a show called Good Girls Revolt, which is fighting for its life. Amazon, as you may know, makes original television. Uh, It's not available to everyone. It is through Amazon Prime, but mainly only in the U.S. Uh, If you're Canadian, you have maybe had to resort to nefarious means to see some of the things. Uh, And they also have this process where they make pilots, people vote on them, and then based on how it goes, uh, then they make the show. One of the ones that didn't get picked up, which is interesting for you and I and probably lots of Laney Gossip fans who were into the book as we were, was The Interestings. The Meg Wallitzer Mm -hmm. uh, project did not go as a series at Amazon. Now, to be fair to Amazon, in the interest of like before we, if we're going to dump on them, Amazon is also transparent. Oh, a hundred percent. No, no, yeah. no. Like it's, I think their process is as, uh, it's the same as any other network. On, on every network, every year in pilot development, they order many pilot scripts. They yep. make a smaller number of pilot episodes. They make, uh, from those pilot episodes, they choose three or four or whatever number of shows to make. And not all of those shows make it to the next season. That is the process. That's how it goes. That's just how it goes. But one of the pilots that made it to series was Good Girls Revolt, which is the story of the employees at an American news magazine in the late 1960s, uh, including Nora Ephron, stars Anna Camp and uh, Joy Bryant and uh, all kinds of people 
People were really loving this show, if they could see this show. And the first season has aired uh, on Amazon. And then it was announced that it, it would not get a season two. It was canceled. Happens all the time. Except that apparently the ratings were great. Now, ratings on Amazon, it's hard to, it's not the same way you gauge like a Nielsen box. And there's debate over who was checking the ratings and how and whether they were right or not. But allegedly, it all came down to one guy who was not at Amazon when the show was originally ordered, who didn't like the show, which is his prerogative, who wanted to make room for other other programs. And so the show's canceled. And they are trying to get it a new life on a new network. This is the kind of thing that was totally unheard of 10 years ago. But now you can do this. You can move community from NBC to Yahoo. You can have other... There are so many examples that I'm blanking on right now. Other shows that are canceled in one place that get picked up elsewhere. And so this is kind of a last gasp. There are petitions going on. Uh, because if they can get it set up somewhere and make deals with all their actors before December 31st, maybe they have a chance. Otherwise, they lose the option, the kind of hold on all those actors. And of course, it's you know, important to mention that all this information is coming from the show's creator, Dana Calvo. That's right. She has given lots of interviews saying that as far as she knew, uh, the show was doing very well by the metrics she was told to watch for. She also said that the day that she was invited to the offices to pitch the show, uh, the executive asked for her to refer to the characters by the actors' names because he didn't know who the characters were. And the next day found out it was canceled. Again, nothing here is illegal. Nothing here is a problem. This is how networks work. It is often according to the preferences, the whims of whomever. Uh, You know, a notable thing here, I remember when this was happening to Friday Night Lights, uh, everybody kept asking Ben Silverman at NBC, are you going to save Friday Night Lights? Are you going to save it? And he said, "Um, why don't you guys watch The Voice or something to that effect? I'd have to find the exact quote. But he didn't feel it for Friday Night Lights, and so it didn't happen, which then went on to be on ION for two more years. So, you know, it happens. This can happen. But the reason people are so upset, of course, is because we have precious little representation of women on TV right now that is passing the Bechdel test, that is interesting and compelling and is about women for women's sake. And obviously, because we cannot go a week without mentioning Gilmore Girls on this podcast, the appetite is there. The audience is there. And so it seems upsetting and problematic to lots of people to cancel it when there's this audience that is being left unserved. And for the purposes of this podcast, the reason why this show is particularly interesting to us is because this was a show about women at work, early women at work women at work who made it possible probably for you and I to do the work we do. I mean, these were women who were commenting on culture and politics and music and art, and they were not, um, they didn't have their own trailblazers, right? They were oftentimes the first people who were doing the work that they were doing. That's right. Running up against the wall, hitting the wall, and it's a big problem. 
So I'm really torn between this is how the business goes and I don't think anybody knew it was on because the way Amazon is, it's, it's harder to know when some of these shows become full season shows as opposed to those sort of trial pilots we were talking about. And going, no, this is something important and any broadcaster with half a brain would want to have it on board. Uh, and there's so many reasons why this is why this is seems like a no-brainer, and yet maybe it's not. Um, what do you think? Are you more interested in seeing it now than you were? Is this one of those situations where the controversy creates the audience? I was interested in this show, you know, before it started. I remember sending you an email with the trailer, like, "Holy fucking shit! Look at this show!" And we live in Canada; it's harder for us to get, you know, all that. And this was going to be a show that I watched over the holiday break, which is when a lot of us mainline shows, we sit in the basement, we don't do anything else, and we watch one series over the course of one day and get super pumped and obsessed over it. I was really excited. That was number one, if not number two, on my list. I don't know if I can do that anymore, but now I feel more passionately about it because this has happened. The question is, are there advocates and crusaders in Hollywood? to not only protect these kinds of shows, but protect the future shows. Um, And we do have a few. So here's what's really interesting. People love to, and I see it every day in my professional life and not, somebody says, well, we should have more representation of women on screen or behind the screen. And the next person says, well, we should just have the best stories or we should just have the best people for the job. That's Matt Damon, by the way. And they are right to a certain extent. Everybody wants the best stories. Everybody wants the best person for the job, except that when the people who are making the decisions about what counts as the best stories and who the best storytellers are, are overwhelmingly white men, they choose the stories and the storytellers that mean something to them, and they tend to reinforce their own viewpoints which is why our sort of next most related story is really interesting. Because I also think it's a double-edged sword for women. You know, there's an argument that if you are a woman in power, if you are Shonda Rhimes, if you are Tina Fey, that you should be advocating for other women, that you should be talking about how they should be in power. And I think that they do all the time. I think you can find tons and tons of quotes by Shonda Rhimes, by Tina Fey, saying as much. I also think that if they, you know, hire any given woman who turns out not to be the best for the job, as lots of people do, uh, if they put somebody in a position that is not the best for them, then it becomes, oh, well, you had an agenda, and look, it came back neutrally. Ryan Murphy, who is basically running half of television himself at this point, says that Hollywood has failed female directors and has said, I'm sorry. And he actually said at the uh, Women in Entertainment Breakfast this week, he said, I'm sorry, it was my fault. I could have done better. I'm going to do better. Ugh. How'd that make you feel? Well, it made me feel like, first of all, why aren't there more Ryan Murphys? Instead of, it's not my fault, you know, don't blame me. I'm just doing what I can do. Taking more ownership than maybe he even needed to. 
here's what he talks about specifically. He's, he backs himself up. And look, I've had, nobody's perfect. Ryan Murphy is not perfect. Not all of his programs are perfect. But this is how we get better. Not by waiting for somebody to be perfect, but by appreciating the things that they do. So he talks about how there was the Marsha, Marsha, Marsha episode of The People versus O.J. Simpson, which, by the way, I loved. I loved that entire series. And as you and I have talked about, it points out how sexist the behavior was, the treatment of Marsha Clark was back then in a way that we didn't explore. None of us were looking in 1994 at exactly how terrible that treatment of her was. I was part of that treatment. And as I wrote about recently this year, um, yeah, I was like 19 and I was like, why does she have shitty hair? Right. Oh, she's so off-putting. I mean... To me, I look back and I feel ashamed. But as, you know. But this is what this show did. Absolutely. It pointed out that we all kind of had those feelings and maybe sort of explored them 20 years later. When you know better, you do better. And so Ryan Murphy said he felt it was important to have a female director direct that episode. Smart. Good for him. But then that director got sick or had an emergency. Uh, She had a medical emergency, actually, and she had to leave two weeks before production. Uh, which for a show like that is basically the last minute. It's the night before. And so he stepped in and did it himself. That makes sense, right? Totally. And again, as I mentioned, not something I don't think anybody would hold him to apologize for. And yet he says, I felt I had failed. I've always had female directors on my shows, but why here didn't I feel I had a roster of women around me who I could turn this important episode over to? Why weren't these women on speed dial? Why did I make the choice that was easier for me, but not for the material or the world in general? It's huge. It is a huge statement. Huge. And it is only going to do well for him, for us. Uh, You know, we could spend a whole podcast on why it is exponentially more difficult for women to become directors, even than writers than producers, there is a a hierarchy and a mechanism set up that is exceedingly difficult to weave your way through. And so I find this really, really interesting. And so, you know, he now has 60% of the available directing gigs that he has on his shows going to women. uh, And the industry overall is clocking 17%. So he's doing a huge thing. But I want to point something out here, and that is that this is no fail for Ryan Murphy. There's no way this goes wrong. He looks great for doing this. His shows probably will be better because anything is better when you have gender parity. You have more perspectives. You have men and women have different and complementary perspectives that are great to have on the same project. It's no fail. If It doesn't work out if on any given project he falls to 45% representation of directors. He's still a hero. I worry a little bit more about why it is that it's men who are in this position to be this generous. And this takes nothing away from Ryan Murphy. But I feel as though when it's women who speak out, you mentioned Matt Damon at the beginning. And of course, uh, his conversations with his producer on Project Greenlight. Effie Brown. Effie Brown. 
I feel like Effie Brown is not as free to say these things. That's right. I feel like Constance Wu, who has been vocal about the whitewashing that happens in Hollywood, is less free to say these things. I'm aware that even as I champion and celebrate and cheers to Ryan Murphy for getting it and for seeing that he can make like a visible, active change, I worry about the fallout for people who are not quite as powerful, who are not quite as high up to say the same things and arguably never get the, not just the credit, but arguably be punished for the same reason. But those are the people who are asked about it, which is why Amy Adams in the Hollywood Reporters Roundtable for Actresses was like, I'm not answering that question anymore about diversity, inequality in the workplace. You go and ask the producers. You go and ask the studio heads. Because what happens is when actresses are asked about that question, they, if they give their honest answer, to go back to what you were saying, that becomes a headline and that then becomes the debate. And once again, they're put in the spotlight with the responsibility to do something for it when why aren't you asking the people who actually make those decisions, which are, for better or for worse, the white men? Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, if you are a producer of note who's not as much of note as a Ryan Murphy, if you, you know, I just feel like there's a, you. it's more seen as loudness and causing problems than really speaking truth to power. Uh, so it ain't perfectly equal yet. Oh, God, no. And, I mean, this is a little bit of a a tangent, but I recently read um, a piece written by Jen Yamato, who is a film critic, and she was talking about um, film criticism needs more diversity as well, right? And we have all talked, you know, on Laney Gossip, we've talked about film criticism and how that affects box office, whether or not it does, and how it can affect the awards season, because... Most film critics are white men, and the films that they jerk off over are the ones that get the buzz. Right. And they're seeing those films with the lens of the white man. We're back to the choices about the shows that get on the air, the movies that get made. And, you know, it spills out even towards film criticism, television criticism. And she wrote a criticism of the film Sully, Mm -hmm. directed by Clint Eastwood, starring Tom Hanks. And she talked about how, and this film, first of all, it's boring. Um, It has landed on the best lists of the year, right? Might get nominated for an Oscar, certainly is considered among the top 10 films of the year. And she, as a woman of color, saw the film and the things that she was pointing out was, hey, wait a minute, Clint Eastwood and casting directors of Sully. So you, wait a minute, so you talked about this real life story about the plane and the plane going down and how Sully masterminded the rescue of the plane and landed it safely. And I'm looking around at the passengers on the plane, and they're all white. You're telling me a, a plane flying out of New York City? And this was not in the 1950s, but I don't know when that Sully thing happened. It was, oh, what, not that long ago, 10 years ago? You're telling me that only white passengers were on the plane? She noticed that. Right. Who is the story for? And who didn't notice that that was a problem? Who are all the people that it flowed through before her that didn't see that it was a problem? And this is what keeps on reinforcing itself over and over again, that if you tell stories that look like you, 
that matter to you, there are a lot of people who are ready to say, well, that won't hit a big, massive audience. That won't resonate with middle America. That won't do. And you have to question, who are the people who are making those decisions and putting up those roadblocks? And lest the tone be anything less than celebratory, can we just shout out Ryan Murphy for being one of the ones who is saying, I'm removing myself as a roadblock, even a benign one. I'm here for it. I'm very here for it. Thank you, Ryan Murphy. And now, before we go, the question of the naming of this podcast. So, so let's talk about, you guys did uh, some great feedback. We really appreciate uh, the people who really were into working class, were not into working class, people who liked machinations, who didn't, uh, who had other suggestions that in, you know made us laugh or consider or whatnot. There was one email that we received that was really interesting. This email was from Yvette, and Yvette um, objects to the title working class. And here's what she says. Working class is a real thing. It's a description of cultural and economic circumstances that define and contain people who labor for others' agendas in order to pay their own bills. I'm not going to go into a rant about all of that, the working poor, etc., but I'd like to comment on your observation that people think work is a bad thing, whereas it can actually be a fulfilling thing. Here's the thing, Lainey, you do work that is meaning to you, work you chose, work that's not perfect and is sometimes hard but feels organic to you as a person and gives you a sense of yourself as having a meaningful place in that world. That is privilege. In fact, I would argue it's a core feature of what it means to have economic privilege. The reason people have come to hate work is because most people have to work at things that, while not always useless to society, are meaningless to them personally. They have to do the work that's available in order to earn their lives. For most people on earth, it's an unattainable dream to imagine doing work that is meaningful to them. You talk a lot about cultural privilege, but in your new podcast, at least in the naming, please be aware of economic privilege. You're discussing people, actors and musicians, who have the enormous privilege of doing work that is meaningful to them. Sure, they work hard at it, but I'm not going to admire them for having a work ethic when the work ultimately is all about personal fulfillment and personal choice, and nothing to do with the indentured labor, effectively, that's what it is, of what traditionally we've known as the working class. Please find a different name. We love emails like this. So smart. So well thought out. And obviously has a lot of valid points. There are a lot of places to discuss further to say working class, of course, to you and I also means uh, kind of a seminar on work, uh, taking a class on how to work, why to work, what, why it's important. But the point is really well taken that working class is not merely a synonym for people who get up and hustle nine to five, but people whose work is in many ways labor for survival as opposed to uh, trying to realize a, a dream or a goal. Yes? That's right. Work that is shaped sometimes, most of the time, unfortunately, by their circumstances. Right. Uh, and so Yvette has an excellent point. And so it made us sort of think about whether or not there was another name that still imbues the spirit of what we know and what we like, and, and yet takes that into account. 
And guess what? There was another suggestion, and it came from one of you. It did. And the thing is, is that for us, we still like working class, but when this email came to us, for me, I was like immediately like, Duanna! And I sent it to Duanna, and Duanna's response was, well, you were like, I think you wrote ding, ding, ding. I wrote ding, ding, ding. What does she win? So here's the ding, ding, ding. It's from Muzgan. Muzgan's suggestion, which was the ding, ding, ding. Wait, drum roll. Is show your work. As she writes, it's succinct and, I would like to think, somewhat clever. Should inspire some nostalgia towards school and learning so it goes well with the Faculty of Celebrity Studies. And we agree. I mean, Muzgan, what you mention is nostalgia to, to school and... That's what they always used to tell us, at least back in the day when we were in class, in math class, show your work, right? You couldn't come to the answer. You couldn't be like, oh, here's the answer. You had to do the step-by-step breakdown of the equation and, I don't know, whatever it was, I can't remember, to show how you got to your answer. That's right. So it's not enough just to have an answer. You have to show the work to get there. That's also the case with an essay outline with a whatever. And that's why I love what we talk about here because... There's a lot of magic and, oh, I was just discovered happening in terms of the way things happen in Hollywood. Oh, it just kind of came up. But in fact, there's a lot of work involved and that's what's fascinating for you and I is to talk about that work and to show the work. So here we are at Show Your Work. I think that most people would have heard this phrase before. And we can apply it 18 different ways to this podcast about work. As it happens, an author called Austin Kleon wrote a book a couple of years ago called Show Your Work. And in the description, it says, it's a book for people who hate the very idea of self-promotion, which again, is something that we butt heads about, or at least we bump up against um, on the blog, here on the podcast about bragging. Yeah, self-promotion, how much of it is supposed to be part of the game and how much of it is weird and gross. Should we retweet compliments? Is the game (laughs) changing all the time? Anyway, Austin, if you're around, come on the show. But we're pretty excited about Show Your Work. So we are. uh, We are shouting out to Yvette, shouting out to Muzgan. Uh, I'm Duanna. I'm Lainey. And this is Show Your Work. Please leave comments and reviews on iTunes, where the podcast is now up, on Twitter, on Instagram. Hit us. Let us know what you think. Uh, Have been loving your feedback and want to talk about more of it. And please show us your work, because this is a show about work. Thank you so much for listening. Back next week. See you next time. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.